0: Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Larry Crane. If you're not familiar with Larry, Larry is an engineer, producer, and mixer out of Portland, Oregon, who runs Jackpot Recording Studios. And he's worked with a ton of great artists like Sleater Kinney, Julie Holland, Jenny Lewis, M. Ward, The Go-Betweens, Elliot Smith, and so many more. And he is also the editor and founder of Tape Op Magazine. Now, Tape Op is a great resource for learning a lot about recording as well, and they even have a free subscription on their website. So I definitely recommend you check it out. It's a very, very cool magazine. But this is a great chat that I have with Larry, and in this conversation, we really talk a lot about balancing creativity versus efficiency in the studio. And we talk about a lot of the different traps that people fall into when it comes to experimenting constantly and how that can actually affect the end results that you get and also affect the way your sessions run. And Larry is definitely someone who, with his experience in tape op, has reviewed tons of gear. He's learned tons of tips and tricks from people as he interviews them. And so with that knowledge, There could be a really big tendency to want to try everything and overdo that. And in this interview, we get into a lot of that stuff and how Larry manages expectations and how he manages his efficiencies as well so that, you know, he's not just constantly experimenting and never getting anything done. And I think he's got some excellent advice as far as how to manage your process and to make it run efficiently. So with that said, let's jump right into today's episode. Larry Crane, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm doing good. Good. I just got off uh, an eight-day vacation. It started off as a four-day vacation turned into eight. So
0: Nice. Those are always good ones when they go longer.
1: Uh, I was shocked, but a friend had a cabin out at the coast or a little house, and I was able to go there with my wife and relax for a while. So that was really great.
0: That's good. You you need that, right? So many of us just work our asses off all the time. And, like, (laughs) you need that, like, breath of fresh air sometimes to just relax. And
1: you do. I I still find myself answering, like, you know, 40 emails a day. So I don't know (laughs) what what a day off really means at this point. Yeah. I guess it's like
0: a workation (laughs) or something like that at that point. Almost. (laughs) If I don't
1: answer them, then it's just, oh, gosh, you know. Yeah. When you get back, it it always
0: adds up. And you're just like, oh, yeah. It's a write off for the next two weeks. (laughs) Mm hmm yeah it awesome. takes two
1: days to catch up
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so for people who might not know who you are or your background and how you got into all the things that you do can you give us that that story
1: yeah uh how long we got here <laughs>
0: <laughs> take as long as you um, want
1: yeah you know um i am definitely uh one of those people that started off as a musician and a band member and stuff first and but even before that, I was recording my friends, like in high school, I bought some microphones and I was building weird electronic boxes in high school shop class and and recording those. And I learned how to program early basic uh, programming and made programs that beeped and stuff on a computer. Like the very first, uh, Commodore PET was one of the very first personal computers you could get in the late 70s. Uh, but yeah, I was recording cassettes and trading cassettes when I was like 18. Even younger, maybe, and uh, learned how to do radio when I was in high school. I got my actually, you had to get a license back then to be on regular FM radio. And I uh, went to college. I studied filmmaking, but I realized right away I wasn't really a hundred percent into that, you know. Uh, and I started playing in a band called Vomit Launch, and we started <laughs> awesome. making records. And I was making solo cassettes all along there. I made mean, like maybe seven or eight solo cassettes that's a that like, traded. Sinators. that had to have
0: been a punk band right vomit lunch was well you know we,
1: we <laughs> operated in the punk world but we were okay. really more uh we were also really influenced by a lot of the english stuff like things on 4ad records like the cocteau twins and dead can dance and uh but then things like the fall and joy division and you know real post-punk really for sure yeah, yeah. but we played shows with like the dead kennedys and no means no and the replacements and nirvana opened for us and yeah <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> yeah mud honey uh i mean like, the list goes on it's kind of nuts that we played shows with um but uh it was uh, we played with the x one time even but it was really it was really fun i did that for like about eight years and the people in the band were like really my best friends uh, two guys two girls in the band you know um and we made four records along the way and that's when i really started I didn't really, I didn't learn how to get a mic pre-level or anything like that, but I learned how to produce, I think more so. Um, The electronics to me, I just kind of clocked out on that after high school a little bit. Like I learned signal flow and I learned how to plug things in and record at home, but those were really kind of weird things I was making, like weird electronic-y records and just mucking around and learning instruments and stuff in the with the band it's more straightforward you know guitar bass, drums vocals uh but i learned really how to you know start structuring songs and produce and oversee like tempos and so i was the guy in the band that off camera here earlier we were like we were talking about uh uh, being the person hovering someone hovering over your shoulder while you're recording them and i was absolutely the co-producer of the band you know and and the band would absolutely acknowledge that as well. You know, like I would record the demos. I would be like, Hey guys, here's the overdubs I have in mind, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so yeah. I would work with our recording. We, all the records we made, we were two with Greg Freeman, uh, who was our engineer producer and had been in a band called pell, Mel, uh, back then. And then we made two with John Bocigalupi, who is now my partner in tape pop magazine, which we'll get to. But, um, yeah I was just the the, I was like the intermediary of the band in this process and I understood the process and I really understood the idea of overdubs and what would you know what would make something sound cooler and getting the right sounds on the floor and all that stuff and so after our band broke up uh, we were in Northern California down there back then Uh, 1993 I moved up here to Portland Oregon And I kept mucking around with, I was playing in the band and I was recording and, um, and it just, people kept coming over to make demos and, and I started to have to learn how to, you know, set a mic pre (laughs) and what a (laughs) compressor really did. I would say like, Oh, compress that thinking that meant to like reduce its bandwidth, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, you definitely studio. have to learn the language of being in the studio, right? And like some people, yeah. some people don't know exactly what they're trying to say, so they make mm-hmm. up other words, and it's it's a very oh, interpretive. Field. No,
1: they use the wrong word. Like punch in and overdub are very different things, right? Yeah, you know, I've seen that go haywire, <laughs> you know. But so, um I started setting up a studio in my basement back in uh, '94 or so, and recording people. And uh, because I had done all this stuff in bands and everything, I knew people like Stephen Malkmus from Pavement and I knew people that ran record labels and played in bands and so people were coming through like you know, I had artists from like New Zealand and Canada staying at my house and recording with me bands from Chico from Northern California where I used to live would come up and record uh Cat Power to the 7-inch uh you know it was kind of ridiculous that things I was doing were at the level they were at you know just in my basement and so that turned into a uh, while while I was doing that, I started Tape Op Magazine because I wanted to do some kind of a zine type thing about recording, which I'd never seen done in that with that sort of spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I, in '97, Elliot Smith and I moved into a space and set up a commercial version of my studio and renamed it Jackpot, and uh, that's been going for 25 years. So that's amazing. Uh, and the magazine is 26 years old this year. So you know, a couple of really dumb ideas working in printed media and a studio full of tape decks uh, (laughs) somehow worked out.
0: (laughs) I I take it you're the kind of person that has had to learn to adapt to changing business landscapes and that kind of stuff. Because, yeah, obviously, you know, the print world definitely took a hit with online stuff. And, you know, now everything is getting smaller and smaller from the studio side of things, too.
1: Yeah, but no, I mean... Like if you examine why tape op still works, it's a print The most of the, most of the income that we get for the magazine is advertising and advertising in print is still much more viable than advertising online. So, you know, if I had to made a PDF only magazine, people aren't going to give me, the same rates to put Bam. a full-page ad in that and then send an email with a PDF on it. But a print version that gets distributed to schools, it gets distributed, you know, to some stores, uh, you know, actual actual bookstores and music stores and things. And, you know, I mean, that actually works and they people pay for the ads and it's profitable. So that, you know, contrary to what people think, I think niche, especially niche publications, are still viable, especially if they're highly curated and focused, you know, Fair. um, on the other side of it with the studio, um, I started with home recording, right. You know, before many, many people were, you know, I saw people's home studios when I was young, cause I lived in a really artistic community growing up. I would go visit people. There'd be a four track it'd be some synthesizers, a little mixer. I'd be like, Oh, okay. I get it. You know? So to me, the studio is really still just an extension of home recording for me. And as soon as, as soon as we, I kept waiting to escape, um, tape based digital recording audio systems like the a and stuff. I knew that that was just an intermediary step to at least hard drive recording, uh, if not solid state digital recording that we have now. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I, I, um, uh, I kind of knew that at some point it would be easier and it was starting to become, I could even see it in 97, you know, that there were people figuring out ways of like taking home some of the sessions and, uh, you know, say having a clocking, a uh, an ADAP player to a tape deck and then doing overdubs at home and then coming back and syncing them back up. And I saw stuff like that happening. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is the future. Yeah. You know,
0: do you, do you consider yourself someone who like, adapts to the the new technologies really quickly or do you are you like one of those people that's a little hesitant to jump all in with it
1: um that's a great question i'll put it this way i didn't have a pro tool system till the digi 001 came out and even then i just kept it in the box sitting next to the tape library and people would say do you have pro tools i say yeah right there you know, like I didn't want to hook it up yet. <laughs> and when I first hooked it up, I used it in place of my DAT machine. So I was mixing into it and then able to like compile, make my CDRs faster, uh, compile mixes and maybe stems and things like that. So it was more versatile than the DAT machine. Um, it wasn't a great system. The 001, the 002 I had later, Those those were not great systems. Pro Tools initially was really expensive to have like the... Uh, the 888 systems and all that. Um, And uh, I didn't have that kind of money. So my first venture, my first studio version of Jackpot was really a 16-track, two-inch tape deck and a console. And I worked that way. I worked really analog. It wasn't out of this sort of like, analog is better, blah, blah, blah. You know, I knew that digital was going to get better. It did. It wasn't great initially, you know, but it was... It did I knew that the technology would keep changing, but I'm sure. not a quick adopter in, in a lot of ways. I kind of waited out in most cases, and uh, now I'm a little faster. At, you know, I'll try a new plugin and those kind of things. The way the way I looked at technology, I look at technology now is like plugins, trying different plugins. That's kind of this lateral move. You're you're just gonna exploring on the same plane of of where we're at right now. I don't see this changing a ton I mean there's there's delivery changes like Atmos and stuff
0: yeah. and
1: I'm not going to jump into that I didn't jump into five one mixing and that would have been a big waste of my money then I don't know where this Atmos thing is heading but I don't have much belief or faith in it because I've just I think I think if you look at the history of recorded music the delivery format is the one thing that changes faster than the recording technology in most cases so sure we've got to be careful, you know, not to, you know, to deliver quality work, quality mixes that are maybe a little future proof, you know, when they're just stereo mixes, get them to them high resolution if you can, whatever your highest sample rates and things you worked in could be. But I, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's like, Oh good. A new, a whole new way of working. You know, like I still don't trust DSP speakers, you know, with built in, correction modes i don't think that's a, an intelligent way to solve the problem you know there's a lot of things that i do based on physics and science and electronics that i'm like nope that's dumb you know <laughs> no, no, contrary. so you know i'm not a luddite but i'm, I'm also you know I've, I've got a in some ways i've got a better sense of how the insides of a lot of the gear works than many engineers i've worked with i guess mm-hmm. uh just from Things I've learned over the years and just basic electronic skills and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's so,
0: important because, like, everyone is constantly feeding, like, the new, improved, faster way to do things. And yeah. a lot of it, you can kind of see the writing on the wall. that Maybe this isn't the actual solution. Or, or it's not really getting to the root cause or root problem a lot of the times, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, look at something like the Focusrite Liquid Channel when that came out, which is basically a, uh, you know, a decent mic pre with with plugins built into it in a box you know and you look at that it's kind of like looking at the dap machines you're like okay here's a here's a a moving piece of tape recording digital audio well digital audio is a very uh in a way a non-time based form you know it's just ones and zeros so when you're looking at this this liquid channel you're like Oh my God! Well, that should just all be in the computer, you know, soon, and it was, and it is, and you know, Focusrite makes good gear no matter what, but that was like a step into like an inter- intermediary step towards where we are now, and and when you see those kind of things happening, it's like, you know, oh, you know, I, I would I would walk around like a Nam show or an AES show, and I just look at things and I go, future landfill, future landfill, future landfill, <laughs> you know. um, make sure to pick the take the lithium batteries out um you know because things are just a bunch of boxes made of plastic with motorized faders and you know they're not going to hook up to anything in 10 years that's operable you know oh now all the cables are USB C or thunderbolt 7 or you know <laughs> <laughs> it's just really that stuff's really annoying
0: I yeah think. i mean there there is that uh in the tech world, there's always like that planned obsolescence sometimes. And and it's it's very Mm -hmm. frustrating as a consumer to kind of know that that's being considered, you know?
1: In the audio realm, it's really annoying because we are also at the same time always looking back, you know, we're like an LA-2A and an 1176 and a Fairchild are still great compressors that are desired. So, you know, there's something about, you know, Quality real electronics that does something pretty magical and I can guarantee you that's true You know owning tube mics and lots of tube gear and retro equipment, you know that company makes amazing stuff So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's they're not there still are not plugins that can emulate the quality of some of this hardware And, and it all starts the thing that people always, always, always forget is it starts with the very beginning of the sound, you know, we could talk about, you know, the sound on the floor and what the microphone's picking up or vice or, you know, how your DI works. People always kind of forget like, what's the quality of the microphone preamp, you know, and what does it, how does it handle like extreme transient shifts and, and all these things or really quiet sources, really loud sources. What are the what are the different characteristics that happen when these voltage changes or sound pressure changes on the mic occur? You know, there's a lot of stuff at play and and a lot of times we're being told like this plug amazing and then the front end for the plugins a bunch of garbage, you know, it's a garbage mic pre and a garbage converter, you know, or not garbage, but just designed cheaply because someone needs to save money to get the product through. Yeah, for sure. And, that part's always kind of disturbing.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then, what are your thoughts? Because it seems like these days, more and more, we're starting to see a lot more emulation tools, and like we're seeing not not just in the form of plugins, but like even I think of like the Kemper's and stuff like that for guitars, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. like a lot of that kind of modeling, where we're starting to like it's almost as if people are trying to like create this mind shift of like, you don't need real amps anymore. We've got something that can make it sound like an amp. <laughs> like, you know, do you think it'll be the same sort of thing as like the LA-2A where it's like, we just go back to it because those just work really well? I
1: mean, you know, like I, I'm a huge ad- adopter of the the UAD platform, you know? UAD two, all the plugins, and uh, that stuff works really well for me for mixing and stuff. So I, there's things like that where I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. But at my studio, I've got like a retro. I've got two retro 176s, a real LA2A, a couple 1176s, a uh, oh my god, what a TG2, TG1, the compressor. Uh, you know, all these things that are really overtly distinct. You know, and when, when stuff is emulated that can be great i mean there's so many great reverb emulations and stuff but when people are emulating like a mic pre for a console that really wasn't all that desirable in the first place i'm not <laughs> going to name names but it's kind of like you're missing the point you know yeah you know yeah. <laughs> i mean it, i think a lot of times things are assigned a value because there's a hit record made on them like you know like, and, and i you know i'd be careful about what i say here to offend anyone but it's like that's not really where it's obviously not where the magic happens, you know, (laughs) you know, like a circuit, there's so many older consoles that were designed with like op amp chips, you know, like the I can't remember some of the numbers, I think the five, 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 some of these chips that, you know, run on five volt rails and, and you can design a good circuit around them. It's fine, but it's all that interesting in the end and a single band EQ and pro tools, the stock one, it works just as good or better. You know, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of myth- mythology stuff, I guess, that just sort of disturbs me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the amp simulation stuff is pretty handy. I mean, there, there are times I get sent stuff to mix and I'm like, wow, that, that, how'd you do this? And, you know, they were either using some kind of uh, uh, plugins or, or something like the Kemper or, or uh, something out external. I mean, I suggest a lot of times that people want to use this stuff to get like a SANS amp to plug in first use some pedals and then get it in there and do some cabinet some simulation and things like that. But, um, you know, it it usually works, but a lot of times it sounds just dead in the water to me. It doesn't have any, uh, because there's no air moving, it doesn't really have a sense of space or depth no matter what they do. And, um, that's kind of hard, you know, that kind of makes the music feel kind of flat. I always tell people it's, it's on the plane of the speaker. Like, As you're looking, if you look at your monitors and you feel like the music is only right there, like everything's kind of dead and dry and just right on the front, you know, if everything feels that way in a mix, there's something wrong, you know, like you're just squishing and pushing things out of the way.
0: For sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. Well, it's definitely, we're starting to see that trend of trying to make things way more accessible. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I even think about like at the time of us recording this, there's like a tube shortage going on and it's like how is that going to affect amps in the future you know like i think a lot of people right now are like i don't want to spend 75 bucks on like a 12 ax7 tube or something like that you know so it's like that could happen right so i can see how people might want to just start adapting this new tech and and maybe that's i I, i'm curious like it it might end up becoming the sound because like that's just what people can afford and that's what is going to start to come out more out of home studios and Maybe that just becomes a thing, right?
1: And there's things. I mean, years ago, when like the, the Line Six Pod first came out, my friend uh, John Goodmanson was doing records for like Saliva and stuff like that, and he was like, "These guys all have their guitars, like they have seven string guitars, and they're tuned down, so they're they're in the bass range, you know, the bass guitar range," and he's like, "A guitar amps, the guitar amps aren't aren't handling these frequencies." So if we plug them into a direct thing like the pod or something else, we can actually get more tone out of the guitar. I'm like, oh yeah, shit, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know. So there's cases where it can actually help to, you know, not only define the music, kind of like what you're saying, but to allow the full range of an instrument to exist. You know, something like a Chapman stick or or something that's like all over the map frequency wise. You know, so there's there's a there's possibilities of. I mean, obviously in every case of technology there's the possibilities of abusing it or finding a way to use it for wider expression or new expression and and that's always absolutely hundred percent okay in my book for sure um, my problem I, c- I could be a crabapple for hours here but you know <laughs> I love music I'm a huge fan of music and if that's not obvious from tape op and stuff then you're not reading it really properly but uh, you know my problem is... With recording, and especially with with people recording themselves, is why do you want to sound like other music? You know, I I, I think about a lot. I'm working on an end rant, and my I'm kind of rolling it around in my head more and trying to figure out how to write it. But I went back and I I, I kind of like reassembled and remastered some cassettes I did for a, for a really small release that my friend has a tiny label, and there were cassettes I made my own music in 83 to 85. And I took these, had someone to dump these cassettes over to me to, to digital. And so I just kind of grabbed at things and I I recomposed and I faded them in and out of each other and added some reverbs and things. And it was really fun process. And I was like, wow, you know, what's funny about this is when I was making this music, which is certainly not mainstream oriented music, it's not drums, bass, guitars, it's not pop music. But when I was making it, you know, I was using some home stereo speakers. I didn't give, I didn't even know that there were speakers you would go to the studio that were not like your home stereo speakers. Right. And I had used, you know, some Sennheiser headphones, some, those yellow foam open back ones that you get for maybe 80 bucks back in the (laughs) eighties. Um, so when, when I went and listened to these cassettes and I'm listening to what I did, all the intent, despite the lack of like amazing technology, I was using an, a Radio Shack mixer that was powered by a nine volt battery, you know, all these, I was using stuff that would just horrify most recorders these days that are recording themselves. But the intent of the music I was making was somewhat created by the limitations. And, and what was in front of me would, I would experiment, experiment and find sounds and, and, you know, record something and then, and then make two recordings or play them together and find phase shift and flanging, you know, And, and all this stuff, there's nothing that I was doing then was, was going to be any better if I'd had really, really good monitors or if I'd had a tutorial from somebody about mixing, none of that would have changed. And that kind of makes me think like, yeah, like if I think of music from that era that I was listening to, like say, you know, homemade sort of noisy new age records or, um, uh, the residents or uh, something experimental in that vein, or or someone just putting two mics in front of them and recording acoustic songs straight. The All the intent that needed to be done was being captured. And why do I sense so much frustration now from home recordists? And I feel like part it's because they're trying to play in a game. They're trying to compete in a game that um, maybe they weren't invited to, this is kind of a nasty way to say it, but do you you see what I mean? Like, you know, you're trying to play in a pop field. Like if you're trying to make Billie Jean, then go back and look at how Billie Jean was made. Do you have the resources to do that? Likely you do not. And you can simulate the sounds that Bruce Swedean and everybody captured and built and made. But you're not gonna go through that process the same way and have the inspirations and the magical moments and the craziness and the that that create something that's bigger than life like that. And you're gonna have you're gonna be building it with like, you know, drum samples and logic that sound like Billie Jean because Billie Jean's already been created, you know?
0: It's and true. It,
1: it's it's kind of a backwards path of creativity and if you're not taking everything in front of you, which is almost impossible now because we're given like programs with loops and all this stuff in them, if you're not taking everything in front of you and maximizing that and working that really hard, your sense of creativity is is kind of stifled by the fact that you have everything to work with. I think. Yeah, for so sure. There's a there's there's a couple of problems. Maybe there's two in-rants in there. But I think the problem is that people are trying to aim for these goals that are number one, really generally hard to get to you know like really big pop productions or really big metal productions or really you know things if they're looking at records that were made in big studios like years ago i was recording a high school band and it was a weekend recording session so there's a day of recording and a partial day of mixing probably you know and they're out and uh, the day of mixing the the guy brings in uh that alien ant farm record the one that had the michael jackson cover on it you know uh and he goes we want to sound like this like it's already been tracked you know (laughs) it's on 16 track tape and it's like we want to sound like this i'm like i listened to it and i looked at the credits and i said they spent a week auditioning the snare drum you know (laughs) do you have time for that you know that's a whole different world there's a major producer on this a major studio there's a huge drum room we're in this like cinder block building where I used to be, you know, and, and I've got two days to record this for, you know, 500 bucks, you know, it's like, you have to really look at the, the methodologies. And it's like, if you want to achieve a certain type of music, you gotta go something pretty much approaching that same project, or it's just a very pale simulacrum of that type of production.
0: For sure. Yeah. It's almost like, it's almost like people are just so impatient these days. Cause like we have like tech, digital technology has made things faster in some respects, but yeah. at the same time, we've also just become so used to things being fast that we don't even want to spend the time to dig deeper for the things that actually really do matter.
1: I mean, yeah, th- all these things are faster. So why do I get all these takes from people to mix where they're like, well, we just didn't have time to get that right. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's weird to me, you know, because for the amount of years I would sit there at a tape deck and go, man, let's just record over that and try one more pass, you know, and try to get that better, a better take, better vocal take, a better band take, a better bass line, you know, and, and erasing, you know, destroying what was there before to get a new one over the old one. Uh, yeah. You know, the promise of home recording is like unlimited time and nobody Ninety-nine percent of the people I mix don't take advantage of that,
0: for sure. Yeah, you know, it's like the people that spend a week tracking a snare drum to get the right sound. Like, think about how much knowledge they've gained at that at the end of that week. They've like tried every different way to place the mic. They've tried every different tuning or different drum. Like, you know, when you do that, you gain so much knowledge as an engineer that maybe next time will be faster. But absolutely, you're still gonna it better be. They better be right. But <laughs> but like that's just something that people don't do. They don't spend the time to like, to really hone their skills. It's just yeah. like, Oh, this snare sounds like shit. I guess, you know what? Let's track it. I'll put a sample on it later. You know, yeah. it's like, you're never going to really learn how to actually get it right at the source. If you're doing that. Right.
1: Not at all. And, 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 and it's, you know, it's really frustrating. I mean, I get sent some things that are home recorded that are just am- amazingly well done, you know? And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really easy mix because they were, Generally, because they were recording things very simply, and and they would record something and then listen back and go, ah, that's too far from the acoustic guitar. I'll move the mic in. You know what? They made a decision that that bettered the music, and and uh, those recordings are always fine. And and but many times they are recorded simply, like I said. There, there's a, if there's a simplicity to your recording, and and a, and a strong intent, then you're probably going to succeed. And it probably doesn't even need to be really mixed very much, you know, maybe cleaned up and balanced and appropriate effects done when you're trying to go for something that you just don't have any knowledge of how to get there. Like you said, those experimentations, all that stuff, then you're, you're going to, you're not going to succeed and you're going to be unhappy with it. And you're going to spend a lot of wasted time what I see people doing is trying to remix something over and over and like, well, if I just get this new gate plug in, it'll really fix everything. Or if I, if I side chain the MS, you know, like, Oh Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know, there's all these techniques that people, you know, I just the other day, someone had like tracked an acoustic guitar in, in mid side, but the mid was like, you know, a foot and a half away from the side, mic. <laughs> so that doesn't work and it was a different kind of mic and it didn't nothing nothing held together and it was out so basically it's like i put it up on the speakers it's out of phase because the two side mics are the same source you know plus and minus out of phase and and there's nothing in the center to hold it together and so there's a lot of width because it's completely out of phase and we're getting both sides of a figure eight mic but it's 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 absolutely horrible painful to listen to and it cancels out completely in mono you know and this is like someone taking a you know obviously something they, f- they probably found on the internet like here's a way to record it's amazing and it's like well if you'd experimented somewhere with the mid side you would abandon that immediately because it's not going to work up close you don't have the right mics to do this technique with and, and it, it generally fall, falls apart when it's too close to a source mm-hmm. also you know it's it, it'll work great as a room mic or or something or across the room from a jazz sax solo, you know? Yeah. But, you know, it's, and it's great to learn. It's good to read about a technique, but if you just put one goddamn mic near that acoustic guitar, probably would be fine, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sometimes ignorance can actually be a really good thing when it comes to the tech side of it. Like the less, you know, sometimes the more musical, the decisions you'll make are, but then there's also that other side of it where it's like, you may be ignorant to the actual process. You've heard that it works really well to try out these different techniques, but you've yeah. never actually like really spent the time to actually learn it. And that's obviously where you get situations like what you just described.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's great. It's just, it's frustrating because, you know, I'll hear this thing and I'll be like, well, where'd you find that? Oh, I read about it on the internet. It's like, what recordings have you ever heard in your life that sound like this? Like, it's great to go for something unique and I'm not, those recordings I talked about that I did in the 80s, they're certainly sonically unique signatures, right? But if you're going for something that exists within, a a, most everything that we record exists in some sort of paradigm, you know, like it's alternative country, it's metal, it's it's jazz, it's reggae, you know, so there's sort of certain sonic things that you would hear. And if someone's using a technical technique, like mid-side, and it's not working, I would also say like, well, where did you hear a record where it was working? Because you probably didn't, <laughs> you know, that's the funniest part. It's like, just cause there's a mic technique doesn't mean it's used all the time. And that's the one that's very commonly not used. <laughs> and there. it does have a certain focus, a certain thing that does work really well in certain situations, but it's like, I don't know how many times I've gotten drum sets that are recorded with a midside pair right over the kit and it's just useless, you know? And it's like, you don't know, you're not listening back and thinking about it as far as how that's going to play out to the end result of the final mix. For sure. Obviously.
0: Well, I, I imagine that in your position with tape op, you've, you've had years and years of interviews and reviews that you've done, and you've probably learned so many different techniques for miking up instruments or recording, mixing, whatever. And I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to working on music in your studio, how do you avoid falling into that trap of wanting to try it all? Because I'm sure you read a lot of cool things that you're like, "Oh, I've never thought about that before." So, do you feel you like know, do you feel that pull to to try it all, or
1: no? I want to do what works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, someone, the someone the next end rant that's coming out is exactly that. The next issue, number one forty nine, I say I I was doing one of my virtual recording workshops with a with a client and he had like you know almost a hundred tracks of guitars or something on this song and he's like well if you had all the time in the world wouldn't you want to just experiment and i'm like no i'd want to get it right you know those are two different things And, and they can overlap but uh you know honestly there's time's always a factor i'm paid by you know i'm working not by the hour always but you know, we've got a day to get this done or whatever it is. And we're in there. And it's like, I'd much rather put up a, a miking technique that I know is tried and true and it's going to work than to, to. and I have, I've certainly mucked around and tried all kinds of things, but like, say I've never got the Glenn Johns technique to work at all. So I don't mess with that. I'm done with that. And I love Glenn Johns. He's very nice, but it works for him. It doesn't work for me. You know, I couldn't get the balance I wanted several times over and over and over. So, okay, fine, done. You know, I have some ways that I like to work. You know, honestly, the person that comes in, if I'm recording a drum set, the drummer makes the biggest difference, you know, how they play, how they hit, how they tune their drums, all these things. I can guarantee you there's a record I did called drumgasm with, uh, uh, Janet Weiss, Matt Cameron, and, uh, Zach Hill from Hella and some other bands. And, um, it's Three drummers playing together, and, and when I recorded it, it was in my old studio, which was a dinky space, it wasn't very big. And uh, you know, Matt was the last person to show up, so he got the worst mics, right? Guess which drummer sounded best? <laughs> Matt sounded best. Why did Matt sound the best? His drums certainly sounded good, everybody's drums sounded pretty good. Everybody was a great drummer, no doubt. I'd recorded Janet so many times at that point with Sleater Kenny and Quasi and a bunch of other records. Always sounds great. Tunes up great. She sounds fantastic. Zach Hill plays like no other drummer I've ever heard. Just just crazy, like sonic blast beat things that like machines. And then Matt sits down, moves his drums around a little bit, just starts playing, and it's like he's on the worst mics. He's on the leftover mics. He showed up late, and he sounds better. And it's like, well, because he's the better, not not the better drummer. I'm not going to say that, but he's a focused drummer who keeps his, his tone is in his playing and his hands. And also it is really nicely set up kit. And, um, you know, so when, when you got a, your sessions coming up and people are different people are coming in, that's going to be the biggest difference. And it's like, the more my time is spent, you know, fixing, say the drummer comes in who isn't as good. I'll put up a similar miking technique to whoever was last in there, who was great. But, my job then is to coach that drummer and to go in there and fix their tuning and swap out their drums and put dampers in the kick drum and move things around and talk about their drum patterns. And like, well, where, where's your kick landing here? You know, what is, do you think that's right? You know, like just to, all that work is so much better than me trying 15 different overhead combinations on the drum set. And yeah, that's it's gonna, not gonna and change then, the drummer. <laughs> It's just not going to change the drummer. It's, it's it's probably just going to change how much room ambience comes in, honestly. Or are you, are you going to put up something stupid where you're missing the sound from one of the symbols for some reason? You know, I mean. So I I love experimentation. I think that's great. That's wonderful. But but <laughs> oh my god! Like, figure out what really works and what's going to work down the line. Like you know, the the precognition, the the sort of scene. Seeing, seeing, visualizing this mix through to the end from the tracking stages is so important. And that, doing all that stuff and working harder at like, helping people with their playing and the arrangement and the sounds and all those things, it's just so much more important than the recording part of it, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. You yeah, know? it's so easy to overcomplicate it. And it's like the majority of the time, the simplest setup is always the best one. It's, it's you know, it, I think of it like, I'm a drummer, so when I think of drumming, it's like there are people who are ridiculous drummers who are very creative and like you know can play fills all day long that sound amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's like some of the best drummers are the ones that just play snare on two and four and kick on one and three, and like they master that and it works in in the majority of songs, you know. So it's, it's like sometimes the simple thing is the right thing, and there's a reason why people use it all the time. It's you know having. Having new techniques that you try out doesn't make you more innovative of an engineer. It just makes you work harder to get the sounds that you're trying to get, right?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think absolutely. I mean, you've got to take that time to build up to that level where you have those things readily available. You know, like all these little techniques in your back pocket. Because I can't, there's not a session that ever happens to me where I have to chain don't have to change something you know like Mm -hmm. that that mic is not working on that source you know or that di box sounds horrible on that bass, or something you know it's just wow i don't know why it didn't sound bad on the person yesterday but you know those being able to hear that once again thinking it through to the very end of how the mixing is going to occur is so important and I, i think that's the part that people just If you're mucking around with the tracking, you might convince yourself that some kind of weird overhead drum miking configuration is amazing. But if you haven't tried something similar and found your mix to fail later, you know, using that technique, so that those are the things that you know it's really hard to teach this stuff for sure to me, you know.
0: It sometimes it's just like it's that mental thing of like I'm trying something new, so it's going to be better, and it's like it's almost like the people who. Like have a compressor plug in, start playing with all the knobs and like sounds so much better. And then it was in bypass the whole time. You know, it's like yeah. you fool oh, yourself yeah. you sometimes can... to think that like, just cause you're doing yeah. something, you you're, it's making a big impact
1: all the time. I mean, you know, I see that all the time. I mean, you, you asked earlier, really the gist of the question is like, I interview these people, I learn things and I absolutely do. And the reason that they don't see a bunch of tutorials and tape op and stuff is because they don't work. And because when I interview someone, if they give me a really great technique, like here's a, here's my miking configuration for a drum set, there's probably, I'm gonna probably have to take that concept, apply it, fail, apply it, fail, apply it, fail, and then take one, my own way of doing it away from that. You know, like I get, I'll get one little gist. And a lot of times what I really get is the attitude the person brought to that that created that concept that made him start working in that way and uh, that's another you can't teach a tutorial about about just how to hear right or something you know or how to visualize how this is going to work on your record like, you know like you don't really want to hear the exact mics that nigel godrich uses on a, on a drum set because it doesn't matter what matters is what he gets in the end You're not going to put up those mics and then like, Hey, it magically worked. Like not at fucking all, none (laughs) of that is going to happen. So it's like, it's like the attitude or the thought or the visual, there's a visualization that that engineer producer is bringing to it is what creates that. And that's what I take away from a lot of the interviews more so than, than raw technique or mic choices and that kind of garbage.
0: For sure. You know? So then, as far as your workflow goes, when you're starting a session, like what sort of things are you doing to make sure that your sessions run really efficiently and that you know you you aren't wasting too much time then?
1: Talking to the musicians, <laughs> you know, number one, like, okay, you know, I do a lot of like mostly emails and stuff, maybe phone calls before a session. you know, what are we trying to do? da 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 da. how do you see the day flowing, you know? And then when you get there, and everyone's in the room. It's like this is how I see the day. I tell them how the day's going to go. I don't let them dictate that. I I collaborate on that vision, but I don't let them tell me how it's going to go uh, as a producer, you know. Um, and that's a common mistake that people make when they're younger or fresh at this, so to speak. They'll they'll just let the session run them over, you know. And you need time to do certain things. You need I need a couple hours to set up a drum set and mics and all the things you know it's not going to happen in 30 minutes you can't go get a cup of coffee come back and i'm done you know so i tell them this is how long these things are going to take and by you know around this time we'll start tracking basics we'll have to get headphone levels before that and we'll do this and that you know how do you guys see this do you have any demos what are we doing you know just all this communication stuff and that sort of just sets the the stage for the process and the timing and the and all that And then, uh, you know, discussions, you know, like, you know, maybe like how, where'd you do your last record? How'd that go? How'd you feel about it? You know, just casual ones or where, where have you been playing lately around town? Have you been, oh, that venue, how do you feel there? You know, what size I'll think in my head, what size room that is, how those kind of gigs feel, you know? And so I just start with a really sort of approach of like, I'm just, I'm trying to capture what they have, but I'm trying to make it better than it really is. And I'm, I'm just really focusing on, you know, I'll, lo- I'll try to note, and I focus a lot on drums, you know. I, I, I try to note how they're set up, what kind of kit they're using, I, all the things I talked about earlier about fixing things with the drum set. I'm working on all that. You know, the miking stuff, it usually sometimes I'll set something up and just I'll just think about it for a minute and I'll go, no, 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 and I'll put something else up, you know. <laughs> I'll just, you know, it, it. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, with it. I might go to like a sort of standard Uh, selection for myself and then undo a few of those things as I hear it, you know, on this certain person. And the same with all the amps, you know, might be some Royer mics on the guitar amps, and then I might go, that's not right, and put a dynamic or a a condenser, you know, and just, you know, sometimes I just say, no, don't use my amp (laughs) instead, you know, whatever helps that part, and you know, just methodical, just going through everything, you know, is there hum in the pedal board, you know, can I get some of their effects on batteries? Can I get them to just put the effects down, stomp boxes that they're going to use on certain songs, power them all from batteries, clean up the noise, uh, you know, get rid of the ground loops, da 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 da. Yeah. And you know, I just I spend a lot of time making sure everything sounds really good right from the get go. And if I can get live vocals, I'll f- try to find a way to do that. You know, like keepers, maybe that'd be amazing. I really try to to put the band in a place. So they're more comfortable than it. when I'm doing a group type, you know, project, get them more comfortable than they've ever been and feeling more confident and knowing that they're in really good hands. And then, then we'd start to work on takes and stuff, but gotcha. you know, the technical end of it's so minimal in a certain way.
0: Yeah. I, lo- I love it. I mean, it sounds like you're just kind of going with your standard approach. And then if it doesn't sound right, then you adapt and, and it's not, yeah. it's not really straying and trying something crazy.
1: How Glenn Johns is that? How classic Eddie Kramer, engineer Phil Brown, and, and you know Sylvia Massey, Anybody that knows how to make a goddamn good sounding record does the exact same thing as I just described. <laughs> and when you see a, an interview with an engineer and they and they go on the kick drum, I like the D one twelve, and on the snare, I like the. I mean, sure, there's plenty of good choices. Holy shit. But it's like, you know, I could tell you a list of things and I'm going to swap them out next session. So I don't know. Yeah. It depends what I hear. One of of the most important books uh, I ever read, there's two really, really great books about recording. Uh, One's called Mixing With Your Mind by Michael Stavro, I think. He used to work at Air Studios with George Martin and stuff. Uh, He's an Australian engineer. Uh, nobody reads this book, and they should. It's it's really amazing. And one of the the concepts he had in there was that if you're recording a uh, if you're recording a hard source, use a soft mic. If you're recording a soft source, use a hard mic. And it's up to you to determine what that means. But it means a lot, you know. It means an absolute ton. Um, you can take that to mean like if the symbols are just like jamming your ears out with the, you know, small diaphragm condenser mics, try a ribbon mic, you know? It could mean that. It could mean use dynamic mics on the drum overheads, Mm -hmm. you know, use use muted feeling mics or, you know, move them away from the source, you know, get some diffusion in the air. But that sort of concept's amazing. And the other book that's really good is, uh, uh, is it Mastering Audio, the Bob Katz, Katz book? Yeah, I put, the, yeah, I know what
0: you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's called
1: mastering audio, and it's about mastering a lot. But it's really, uh, it's a really great way to get your head around the digital part of recording as well. It, it's really informative, and it's it's worth an entire read or two. Um, it's a lot of work, a lot of thinking, but it's really good. And it's like those kind of things that tell you that you know you have to use your own. Year and your own sense of it all to get better you know that's that's an important way to look at it that's how i always obviously keep saying here <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so i imagine that over the years like you have uncovered a lot of weird creative techniques in your interviews and you've probably heard all sorts of crazy processes what are some of the most ridiculous creative ones that you can think of that you've that you've heard whether they work for you or not <laughs>
1: yeah like you know like they'll put the mic in a bucket of water it doesn't seem to work but uh (laughs) you know um when they sound too crazy i kind of don't think about them that much does that make sense yeah the ones that really resonate with me are the really old school ones where people had no tools you know and uh, i interviewed um gosh i'm so sorry i can't remember his name but uh, he's the engineer. Did like the early Dwayne Eddy records with Lee Hazelwood producing and stuff, and and he was told me about going out and f- listening to like oil tanks or something, like banging on them and listening to this the whole to to look for one to use for a reverb unit, you know. And I'm like, that's pretty fucking cool, you know. <laughs> and that's on on some classic records that we've all heard now, you know, this crazy reverb they created by piping sound into it metal tank i think those kind of things you know like electroacoustic scenarios of like a, a chamber you know an, a, an acoustic you know reverb chamber plate reverb spring reverbs weird oil i've heard i never mess, messed up with those weird oil tank reverbs existed I, i've never
0: done that but that sounds cool
1: yeah there's, there's like these weird ones that have like a thing of oil or like uh or like the oh, what was the the echo box that had the echo plate or the not echo plate. It had like a spinning metal disk that the, the audio would get recorded onto. There's so many strange things that created like re- reverberation and and type sounds un, you know, unnaturally with a electroacoustic type things and I think that's really interesting. And I think what that leads me to in this conversation is this concept of like now that we've got all these tools, like my laptop sitting right here has more effects and things in it than my first studio had, obviously by miles. But it's like, you better make sure that everything you're doing sounds like you, you know? So like I tell people in my classes as I'm like, you know, if you're using, if like in Logic now there's all these like canned sounds, there's strings and drums and synthesizers and basses and all these things and people send me things to mix and it's all been recorded with virtual instruments and it's just midi and then they spit out the midi tracks as audio and i try to mix it in pro tools and it just sounds dead in the fucking water it is just like snow there's so little going on you know it might be a great composition but sonically it's just it's just dead there's no life to it and it's like i tell people like go take your monitors and then record, you know, put mics in different places on your monitors and record your instruments back over those and work with that or pipe them out into a room and get some real ambience and use that as your reverb channel. And and when you start doing things like that, you're doing something that, that nobody else can recreate a hundred percent.
0: I love that. Yeah. That's super cool.
1: You know, when you mentioned the stuff about guitar modeling plugins and stuff, if someone gets your preset, they can get your exact sound, you know, like how boring is that? You know, would Jimi Hendrix have thrived in an environment like that? 0% chance, you know, it would, (laughs) it would have stifled his music to death, you know? And it's like, make sure you're, what you're doing is yours, you know? And it's not just some plug and play, you know, Legos version of audio, you know? (laughs)
0: for sure no i I love that i i think that it's kind of like we've kind of taken both sides of the coin here with creativity because like there is certainly what we're talking about here where it's like kind of trying to create your own unique sound but also not going like over the top where it's like not musical anymore it doesn't work sure and and also not wasting all of your time like you know, telling a band like, okay, like come in the studio record for an hour. I'm going to spend 10 hours, miking speakers. And,
1: you know, you know <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's so many times that people let uh, a misdirected concept of the process overtake the process the what the process that should be there, you know? And that would kind of relate back to things we talked about earlier. Like, oh, this, this, this miking technique's amazing is so-and-so used it. And then it doesn't work for them, you know? but they're not taking the time to listen and do something different. And, you know, there's certainly people that do, I mean, like say what you just said could apply to a Lee Perry mix, you know, like a dub mix where you say, Oh, just come here and give me the raw material. And I'm going to fuck around for days. I'm going to get high and run these into reverbs and delays and mute and <laughs> open tracks and play it backwards. I and mean, That's awesome, man. Go for it. You know? Yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, you have to look, I think it's all. I think of this all the time. Is I look at this it, as two parts of this process, and and one is like when you're producing or you're tracking or you're doing some, you're just trying to gather all the raw materials you can, with with an intent towards the final product, you know, and you're trying to get them in any way you can. Jim Dickinson said in our magazine once. He said, "Uh, talking about the replacements, especially. He said, I was, I'm trying to steal the record from the artist because they're not really going to give it to me.'" You know, and you're like, "What does that mean?" I thought he was such a pompous jerk at that point. And then I kept thinking about it. I would be in a session. I'm like, "I'm stealing the record." Oh my god, I know <laughs> what he's talking about. I'm, I'm diverting. I'm doing a magic show. Where I'm like, "Hey guys, look over here." Oh, just play that one little fun note right there for a second. You know, and I'm trying to grab what I know will work, even though the artist might be sort of trying to. In their mind, do something they think was going to work. be brilliant, but I know it doesn't work. You know, for sure. So I'm trying to get what I know will work, and and probably when they hear that, they'll be like, "Oh, well, that's fine. Yeah, thanks." You
0: know, I love that. I love that. Yeah, you no, know, it's so true. Because like, oftentimes people just have their own like tunnel vision of like what their sound is or whatever. And sometimes having that yeah. third party of like, "Why don't you try this or whatever?" It's like that's all it takes sometimes to make someone learn something new or find the, yeah. the magic thing for that song. So. Yeah, it's certainly. Uh, I, I love that quote. That's a great quote.
1: The other thing is true. I was just working with. A, there's a band in town called the the Prids, P R I D S, and they've been around forever. And they're kind of like, uh, you know, you people say gothy or something like, but they're not turgid. They're they're like they're more like the Cure, like that kind of cool, okay. rocking, you know, grooving bass lines and really cool guitar sounds and sort of slightly disaffected streamy vocals and and it's really cool stuff I've always been a fan of the band I finally just worked with them a couple weeks ago and uh, I mixed a couple songs for like a seven inch I think and um and I know we we all share the same record collections To so some, I have a well I listen to a ton of music and all kinds of music but I'm I'm certainly into that era of music a lot like Bauhaus and stuff like that and so I start mixing and they're like we're gonna you know, just kind of see what you think. And 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 I'm I'm like, I feel like I'm getting close. And they just turned to me and they said, no one's ever gotten our music like this. No one's ever like gotten it. We've had to say more reverb, turn the vocals down. I'm like, I knew you were going to say that. So I did that already. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, I don't know why we ever worked with anyone else, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, that's because I, I, we share a common language, you know? And I think that's the that's the other thing. It's not just about finding somebody to work with, like as a, as a musician, as an artist, if you're gonna work with others, uh, you know, whether it's playing music or getting recorded, you've got to have like-minded people and people that understand kind of what you're trying to do and where you're coming from. And, and frequently, I mean, I used to see this, especially in the eighties, you know, friends would go record somewhere and they'd be like, wow, that guy was grouchy and didn't like our music and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, didn't know anything about the bands we were talking about like why'd you go there you know find the person that goes oh man you know you sound like the minutemen awesome let's i get what you're saying you know you know it's just like finding the right collaborators is massively important and not not assuming just because somebody has a space and recording equipment and microphones that that everything's going to work out because it's it's certainly it's probably easier to have a horrible session in in the biggest studio in the world than this one of the smallest, you know, because there's just, there's so many more decisions to make. If you walk into Abbey road and there's just an empty slate of a huge room and you're like, all right, what do we do now? You know? And if you're not surrounding yourself with, with talented sympathetic people, it's going to be even harder you know, and I, that's something I've always tried to push forward with tape op is explain that to people. Like you, those are your choices you need to make, you know, even, even if you're going to do everything yourself, then either your collaboration will be with like your audience and your, maybe your mastering engineer before that, or your distributor, you know, or your publicist or a label you might choose to, to work with. Like all those things are collaborative decisions. And they all are very important to making music.
0: Of course. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's all about, you know, finding those collaborations, finding those partners and everyone, the, the, the cumulative effect of all those people and all those different things coming together is really what ends up making the final sound and the final product in the end. Right. So yeah. Picking your team wisely is definitely important. Um, One other question I wanted to ask you with regards to tape, tape op is that like, you've certainly reviewed thousands of pieces of equipment over the years and like have heard, heard, have heard it all. Right. So I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm curious to get get your thoughts on like, you know, there's that common statement of it's about the ear, not the gear. And, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's a double edged sword. Like, well, like our whole conversation, I think, and I'm glad we're, having it and we're not having a one-sided conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, there was a point I hit at my old studio space, like years ago, or I don't remember what year it was, but I finally bought my first tube microphone. I bought a, a manly cardioid reference and I'd never used, you know, maybe I'd used a tube microphone at some other studio when we were in vomit launch. I don't remember, but I don't think so. I think it was like AKG 414s and stuff. As I get my first tube microphone, and it was, you know, $2,000, $2,500, whatever, used. And I hook it up, and I'm recording something, and I just went, holy shit. And I emailed John Bocigalupi. I go, go, dude, I got this mic, and it's just like, wow. And he's like, oh, yeah, those kind of mics can be okay. And then a few years later, he's like, yeah, I'm getting another U67. You know, it's like... (laughs) we both just, and I know John had been recording much, much longer than me and he'd actually gone to school for it and stuff. But, you know, he was always making do with his budget and the smaller studio and stuff too. But as some of these tube mics, as, as we started to get boutique companies, Manly being one of the first, actually, um, we started to see, you know, it was easier to get a hold of something that was like a U 67 or, or what have you. And, uh, and he started, I think John started wheeling and dealing and getting other stuff, getting people to loan him things too. There was one Mikey had down there that was amazing at his studio in Sacramento. But, uh, you know, we both sort of hit this thing where we're like, this does make a difference. And this did up my game. And I always feel like the way, like, I went through several consoles early on with this, with Jackpot, and I went through a lot of monitors early on. And I kept trying to make do with something that was less expensive and then I would get really frustrated like really really frustrated like something is wrong here and then I would upgrade and I'd be like oh my god oh good I can work better I can work more efficiently I can I can work faster and I think that's my biggest takeaway is like whatever can get you get you to that goal point faster you know like you can listen if you have really great monitors you can finally start to just put up some stuff on a drum kit and listen and go Yep, that's going to work. You know, whereas if your monitors are impeding your the information is coming to your ears or your room is impeding the monitors working within the room or your biases are impeding the way your ears are hearing it, then then you're going to be failing, you know. So in some weird way, yeah, gear matters. It helps. But it you know, also it would, like I said earlier, it wouldn't have helped me when I was making my cassette recordings. It wouldn't have changed if I would had great monitors. I probably would have started obsessing over some little tweaky ten kilohertz sound or something that didn't matter. Um, I, I doubt I would have. There wasn't any way to control it anyway. But you, you know,
0: you wouldn't have even known what what that would have been to, yeah, to find yeah. that problem, I wouldn't right? Have, so, I <laughs>
1: wouldn't have known what number the frequency was. Yeah. No, actually, I did know that. That's the funny part. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I I think. <laughs> there's so much gear right now. There's so much wonderful boutique gear. I mentioned retro uh, earlier, who make fantastic tube gear, replications of old stuff mostly, and some great new things. Uh, you know, there's companies that you know, Great River, Chandler, Daking, Wonder, um, I mentioned, I'm, uh, Little Labs. There's so many people that I know personally too that make gear. Hamptone is my my landlord and neighbor, and and he makes some amazing preamps and and compressors and things that people need to know more about. Um, so there's there's so much good stuff that's you know boutique gear. If it's if it's decent, this is usually you know a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars per channel of anything, right? But you know you're in a zone where it's like it's pretty damn good. All right, you know, and I think you know like I mentioned earlier, you don't want your converters or your mic pre's to be the first things that are kind of hitting the digital and they're, and they're inferior, you know? So you want to do that's, that's what I say, burl. You want to do something that kind of overshoots what you need. I mean, this is another end rant I've been thinking about is like <laughs> trying to overshoot so that you don't have to think about it. So, so say you do something like a burl mothership, like I've got two of those things now and you load it with the, modules and you spend you've spent you know a lot of money you know tens of thousands yeah they're not cheap yeah but then you've got this thing that is it's overshot your needs and so now you just run it you don't think about it you're you've shot you push it out of the park my console is a rupert neve designs 5088 45 volt plus and minus rails I'm overshooting headroom, you know, I'm saying this isn't going to be the thing that's breaking up in the mix. It's going to be something else and I'll be able to clearly hear it. Um, you know, ATC monitors that I used down there, the SCM 25 A's, you know, I want bigger ones, you know, (laughs) the larger (laughs) version. Um, but I love them. I hear a lot of detail. And so, so sometimes like, you know, you, Having the better equipment can make the work go easier and and it will make, you know, the, the day go faster, more efficiently, less, less things. I didn't hear that while we were tracking situations or something, you know, um, and and that's great. And it's great for a professional studio, a place where someone's coming in and dropping like eight hundred fifty bucks to record with me for a day. Right. I don't want to waste their time. And they're they're giving me a fair chunk of money you know to come work there so i want to be ready i want to have the best equipment i want to do something they couldn't do at home or or even at a smaller local studio maybe you know to some degree you know uh, so and i can do it faster and i got great headphone monitoring systems where they can make their own mixes and Everything's completely analog on that realm too, just to avoid latency. I think about all this stuff. I have HDX Pro Tools because I didn't want to think about latency anymore at the studio. True. I wanted to be I want to just be able to set up any kind of routing I wanted and not be like, oh your headphones are kind of delayed because there's a you know, it's going through the aux thing here. Like, oh God, you know.
0: Yeah. I love that man. I, I think that really does like kind of sum up. Everything we've talked about here, where it's just like it's all about just you know how can you make your sessions work faster? How can you reduce the number of decisions that you need to make and and just like be more efficient all around? Um, and I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, it not people don't always need the most expensive gear out there. It's as long as it's going to be the thing. Like you can have a cheap microphone. If that cheap microphone gets you the sound you're going for, then mission accomplished. You know, there's there's a reason why 57s are popular. You know, they they just work a lot of time. You know. So, yeah,
1: I, I think absolutely. I think that, you know, there, there's well microphones are like you need $100, $50 microphones all the way up to like, you know, $8,000 microphones, you know, you need to have a variety because that's your first, with any acoustic source, that's your first thing that's, that's going to change what's going on, you know? So I'm always, I have like a hundred and some odd microphones at least and it, probably more you know and i have all kinds of different stuff types of microphones and it's important but it's like you know i could get rid of some of the multi-thousand dollar ones and still do the same job i just have a variety of them so i can swap them out and go yeah that one's better today for this one for sure you know that's just a luxury but it's like it should be the luxury when you're spending money to be in a a space like
0: that you know absolutely absolutely i love that i'm
1: i i do not have one of those at home i don't know what i'm using <laughs> an m audio microphone here for this you know
0: hey, really it works cheap. they got the job done so that's yeah, all that matters right Totally, so <laughs> totally. <laughs> right on well man larry it's been great chatting with you and yeah, i think this has okay. been a good conversation i think it's good to hear kind of both sides of the the, the coin with the stuff and and uh you know I, I think you've just shared a lot of great tips along the way and, cool, and uh, the stuff you're doing with tape op is amazing and people should definitely be checking that out um if people want to learn more about you your studio or tape op like what are the best places for them to do that
1: um, yeah, well, Tape Op is just Tape T-A-P-E-O-P dot com. Free subscriptions uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, free print editions in the U.S. only, though. But PDF versions, yep, you can get them anywhere. Um, totally free to sign up. And then uh, for Jackpot Recording Studio, it's jackpotrecording.com uh, here in Portland, Oregon. And then larry-crane.com is my personal site, which kind of tells a little bit more about my mixing and my virtual recording workshops you know i do tons of online mixing and 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 that's that's really fun i learn i learn a lot too
0: (laughs) well i was gonna say you probably learn a ton from doing tape off as well right it's like it's gonna be a great way to learn
1: it helps you know and i and i talk to my staff about things i'll be like what are you using for such and such that's kind of my my uh you know like we talked about earlier if you worked in a studio complex or something and you'd see our tips that's i've got all these these uh, compatriots and crime here i can
0: (laughs) for sure toss ideas around with (laughs) for sure love it man well awesome well thanks again for being on here i really appreciate it yeah
1: thank you so much
0: so that was my interview with larry crane and i think that that was a really important conversation to have because time and time again When I talk to a lot of my students, I feel like so many people are trying to do everything all the time and trying to use so many different microphone techniques or experiment with different effects all the time. And really, the reason why a lot of times their mixes don't sound as clear and polished as they should is because they've often experimented with things that really aren't serving the song in the best way. And... Oftentimes, it's just going back to the basics that matters. You know, sometimes the basic approaches are the best approaches, and that's where you have to get really good at. That's Those are the things you have to focus your energy on to make sure that you have that foundational stuff there. Because experimenting doesn't always mean better results. And as you heard in this conversation, you know, there's definitely a fine line between being experimental versus getting the job done right. And sometimes it does take experimenting, but other times it doesn't need it at all. So there's definitely that balance. And I'm glad that Larry was able to come on the show here today and talk about it, because I think it is really important to hear that and to start to think about it as you work on your own projects. So ask yourself, like, are you overcomplicating things? Are you constantly trying new things and not really focusing on the basics? Because if you are, I highly encourage you to just slow down and focus on those simple things because even though they may seem simple, even though they may seem like you've heard them a million times before, those are the things that will often get you the best results. So really double down on those and you'll see much better results. So I hope that you found that episode helpful. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live because we've got so many more helpful episodes up ahead and I definitely don't want you to miss out. Also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios so that you can really showcase your talents in the best way possible and use those recordings to help you grow your career, whether that is to help you with building your music career or it's to help you with growing a studio business and attracting clients and actually earning a living from your audio skills. So definitely make sure to check that out. And while you're there, check out The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I put out a little while ago that really breaks down the process of mixing and makes it super, super simple, covering everything from what to listen for, what to do, what steps to work in, what order, all of that stuff. It's just clearly laid out for you so that you're not feeling scatterbrained next time you go to work on your mixes. Instead, you're going to have a very clear workflow to follow and a very clear focus, and that's ultimately going to allow you to make better sounding mixes in less time. And that's what this is all about, right? So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.